Well, today I continue in the series that I have been in over the last several weeks. As you recall, it's the series I'm calling Grace, the Undiluted Gospel. And when I began this series, I made a commitment. I said that I was going to make it as pure and as plain as I possibly could, and I have kept my word on that. Let me ask you a question. If you had a total of $100 in your pocket, and then you added nothing to it, how much would you have in your pocket? The simplest can understand that, can't you? Absolutely. You still have $100, right? The gospel of grace works in a very similar way. Jesus plus nothing still equals Jesus. He's already provided. He's all that we need, right? Now here's where it gets complicated. It's when we try to add our own two cents. Then we complicate things. You see, adding contributions to our 401k may make it grow, but adding contributions to our I'm okay changes nothing. <laughs> we have been made perfect by one sacrifice. Oh, I wish the world would get that. I wish the body would get that. We have been made perfect by one sacrifice. We are the handiwork of the Father's grace, the scriptures say, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his handiwork. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, not because of good works. He put all this together in advance. It's not audible plays. What am I going to do here? I don't know what to do here. No, he knows in advance. He knew in advance what to do. Today, I'm going to be adding the sixth message to this series. It's a message I'm calling the clandestine enemy of grace. And what I want us to see through the message today is this. The indoctrination of the old covenant law as the standard, as the foundation of our righteousness and our holiness is an enemy to our souls. I want that just to settle in your hearts for just a second. What did I just say? I said the indoctrination of the old covenant law as the foundation, as the means as the method to becoming righteous or to becoming more holy, that mentality, that indoctrination is an enemy to our soul. Now, we didn't hear that growing up. We heard do more, be more, obey more, and I'm all for those things, friends, but not for my righteousness. My righteousness is a gift from God. Again, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. There is nothing you add. There are no contributions on our behalf that we add to his finished work. Yet I didn't hear that growing up. I heard, well, you better obey God or he's going to take that gift away from you. He's going to take the anointing off of your life. How many of you have heard this? Now listen, I'm for obeying God, right? 
but not for those reasons. Those are scare tactics. And so we grew up in this fear mentality. We, we did. We still love God. We still had a great time when we came to church. But our doctrine was a little off, friends. And we did the best we can. I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I was in the same camp at one time as well. But as you begin to come into this gospel, this true understanding of God's unconditional love, God's unconditional grace, then you begin to go, wow, I feel exactly like the Apostle Paul when the scales fell off of his eyes and then he could go from persecuting the church to populating the church, to presenting a gospel in purity and passion. And so we were all there at one time. The word clandestine is not a word that we use very often. Maybe you're searching the Rolodex of your mind going, what does that word mean? That seems like a real fancy word, and it kind of is. But like every other word, clandestine has some synonyms. Synonyms are just words that mean the same thing. So the synonyms for a word like clandestine would be things like secret. So I could have just as easily said the secret enemy of grace. Now you begin to go, oh, now I think I understand where you're going. Things like undercover or underground. These are synonyms to the word clandestine. How about words like covert? That might make more sense. Or hidden or just concealed. These are all synonyms of this word clandestine. The clandestine enemy of grace. When I speak of the clandestine enemy of grace, I'm talking about a stealth enemy, an enemy that lives below the threshold of conscious perception. It's an enemy, quite frankly, that can go undetected for a lifetime. I mean, you can go from the cradle to the grave and never know that this enemy existed. It can last a lifetime. I'm talking about an enemy that's hard to see. I'm talking about an enemy that doesn't come across as an enemy. And because it is not recognized as an enemy, it is embraced by the church and treated like almost like a childhood playmate. It's treated like a good old buddy, a good old friend, and they're just brought right in. In the early 1950s, a word was coined. It's the word frenemy. Oxford would add it to its dictionary in the year of 2008. Let me ask you a question. What exactly is a Frenemy. I think you're already with me, aren't you? See, a frenemy comes from morphing two words together, friend and enemy. You put them together, you've got frenemy. And that word shows up in our dictionaries today. I want you to see how Merriam-Webster defined frenemy. It's a person who, despite a fundamental dislike, pretends to be a friend but who is also in some ways an enemy. We probably have run into people like this at one time or another. I'm sure there are countries that pretend to be a friend to us, but at the core, at the fundamental level, they are an enemy. They do it out of fear. They do it out of selfish gain. They do it out of many reasons, but that's what they are. Would you like to know what the main culprit is? Would you like to know what the chief frenemy is that lays the cataract over the gospel of grace so that people cannot see the finished work of Christ? Come on. Would you like to know what that is? Because 
There are times when I talk till I'm blue in the face. There are times I talk until the cows come home. There are times I minister to people to no ends and they cannot see this gospel of grace. You want to know why? Because there's a chief frenemy that's at work in their life. You say, man, Mark, it's got to be the devil. No, it's not the devil. I mean, he's behind all evil. Yes, I get it. You say, well, then it's got to be sin. Surely it's sin, Mark. No, it's not sin, friends. The chief frenemy that lays the cataract. Do you know what a cataract is? Come on. Some of you may have had one removed. It's where you get to the point where you just cannot see. Your eyes are wide open, but they cannot see. And there's a chief friend of me. There's a main culprit that comes along and it lays the cataract over the gospel of grace so that one cannot see the finished work of Jesus Christ. Would you like to know what it is? It's the indoctrination. Listen to me carefully. It's the indoctrination of the old covenant law as the standard, as the foundation for your righteousness and for your holiness. That is a cataract over a gospel that says we need none of that. I'm talking about a doctrine that is directly or indirectly taught from the majority of pulpits with total innocence, friends. Ministers that mean well, ministers that love you, ministers that want you to grow in your walk with Christ. So it's not that they're ill-meaning ministers. No, not at all. You say, Pastor Mark, why do you care about what others believe? Valerie just preached a message last week about eternal life. And if you believe that eternal life is just that, you cannot lose it. It's eternally yours. It's not conditional. It's not temporary. It's eternal life. Mark, if you believe such a way, then why does their doctrine matter to you? Now that's a good question, isn't it? Why does it bug you? Why does it matter to you? I'm going to tell you why it matters to me. A few months ago, the Holy Spirit spoke into my heart and he said, I've called you to be a medic for the soul. And when he said that, I needed no explanation. I knew exactly what he meant. He meant, son, you're going to live life on the battlefield. Son, you're going to see some messy stuff. You're going to stitch some folks up with the word. You're going to see some things. You're not going to carry a gun, son. You're not going to be in that kind of a battle. You are called to be a medic for the soul of man. Let me ask you a question. Does a paramedic care about their patients? Of course they do. That's why they're in the profession. You know what, though? They would much rather have a peaceful night. No 911 calls. The next day, someone said, well, how was your night last night? They said, oh, it was so peaceful. Well, what happened? Nothing. That's the point. Nothing. And when we settle down, all the 911 alarms that are ringing in our heart and ringing in our heads, friends, we can say, I had a peaceful night. I had a peaceful day. I had a peaceful weekend. So they would rather have a peaceful night. No 911 calls. Absolutely. 
Nevertheless, they are standing by to help people in their time of need, friends. Physical needs, right? That's what they're to respond to. And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to be standing by to help people in their emotional trauma, in their ways that they're hurting that you can't see. Ministers deal with 911 calls also. Bleeding souls that keep reaching out to us. Broken people with contusions and abrasions and lacerations of the mind calling for relief from their emotional pain. You know what? The culprit is almost always the same. Guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation regurgitated from the meal of the old covenant law indoctrination. This is where it comes from, friends. Regurgitated from the meal they've been eating on. And it regurgitates up and through their, not mouth, but through their mind. And then they're dealing with guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. You'll know that you're beginning to really get whole. You'll know that you're beginning to really get established more and more in this gospel of grace when that stuff right there, you just go, oh, that's all that was? And you just move along in life. Amen? The one thing that I've noticed, though, is that there are fewer pastoral 911 calls from them that have been connected to the IV drip of the new covenant of grace. Everybody's been to the hospital. Maybe you've been in the hospital. They hooked you up to an IV pole, right? They're drip, 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 all over the place. Drips, right? Change the bag. Drip, 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 drip. And I get it why they do that, right? Now imagine an IV drip of grace just dripping into your heart, dealing with pain, dealing with emotional distraught. You're going to get free. But it takes that kind of a drip into your heart. Now, I am never saying that the moral law is bad. That's the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. You can go down the list of them, right? I'm not saying that the moral law is bad. The Scriptures tell us that the law is good when used properly. But in the same breath, the Scriptures tell us that the law was not made for the righteous. Please hear that point. The law was not made for the righteous. This is the Bible, friends. It says the law is good when used properly, used to bring someone to Christ. That's what the law is for. That stubborn person who just refuses to quit believing that they're good enough to go to heaven. Then the law is brought in to say, no, you're not. You have broken God's law. And it brings you to Christ. But then it says there, it's not made for the righteous. Now, let me ask you a question. Come on, you can answer it out loud. You can answer it in your heart. It doesn't matter. Are you righteous? You righteous, PJ? Come on. You're righteous, aren't you? What did it just get through saying? It says the law was not made for the righteous. Now, by your own tongue, you declared you were righteous. You didn't do it yourself. God did this, didn't he? But by your own tongue, you said, yes, I'm righteous. Is the law made for you? No, it says right there, the law was not made for the righteous. Yeah, I can't tell you how many years I must have looked over that scripture. It must have had a cataract on my eye or something. I just didn't say it. I don't know what was going on. See, this is the power of indoctrination. 
you cannot see because you are so programmed to see one way. You cannot see even when truth is staring you in the face. So hard. To think that the law is made for your spiritual well-being is to cuddle up next to the clandestine enemy of grace. I don't know about you, but I don't want to cuddle up next to any enemy, do you? Especially an enemy of grace. But to think that the law was made for you as the righteous is to snuggle up. It's to get into one of those double snuggies together, you know, and cuddle up next to one another. You're cuddling up next to an enemy, friends, the enemy of grace. You say, okay, I got you, Pastor Mark. Okay, I got you, okay. Well then, how do I keep myself pure? Good question, Anna. How do I keep myself right? How do I keep myself holy? How do I keep myself pure? You see, that's the problem. You can't. You can't. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice keeps you pure. You can't keep yourself pure. You say, well then, how do I stop sinning? There, oh, let's just get to the point. How do I stop sinning if I don't use the moral law as my helper? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. If I don't use that as my guideline, if I don't use that as my plumb line, if I don't use that as my helper, how do I stop sinning? Well, all I can do is go back to the scriptures, friends. Jesus said that he would give us the Holy Spirit. Did you forget about the Holy Spirit? He's the one that helps you stop sinning. He said he would give us the Holy Spirit. And what else did he say? He will be your helper. See, we got this wrong in the church. We think we're the Holy Spirit's helper. No. Are you kidding me? The Holy Spirit would be my helper? That's what the scripture says. Jesus said, unless I go away, I'm not going to send him. But if I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to help you, friends. Help you through life. And he said, you know what the Holy Spirit's going to do? He's going to guide you. He's a fruit bearer. He's a counselor. He's a guide. And then what does he guide us into? All truth. And righteousness, he guides us into truth. And he ministers life to us. This is what the Holy Spirit is here to do. He's not here to follow you around like a a parent following around a little three-year-old and making sure they don't get into stuff. No, that's not his role. He's there to help us and to love us and to lift us up when we're flagging. You see, that is so, so beautiful. Folks, adding the law to a righteous man is a classic example of a frenemy. I can't think of one that would be more of an example than adding the law to a righteous man. The old covenant law as the standard and the foundation of our righteousness and holiness is a frenemy to our new covenant soul. The law is is a friend in the sense, like I said a minute ago, that it brings us to Christ. But after we have come to Christ, it has no part, zero part in maintaining our salvation. Remember what I said? If you had $100 in your pocket and you added nothing, you would still have what you started with. 
The law is not here to help us maintain, to make sure that our $100 doesn't deplete down to nothing and then suddenly we're bankrupt. Not what it's there for, friends. It's to bring people, to humble them and bring them to Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, we find these words. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. What in the world is the Apostle Paul telling us through these scriptures? What is that? What does all that mean? He's saying that when grace, the undiluted gospel, is flowing through a man's life, it changes the man's identity. That man's love and joy and faith become the letter that is read by everyone. Have you ever been able to read someone? Sure you have, in positive ways and negative ways. You've said it yourself. I just didn't get a good vibe about that person. Or I really like that person. And you just met the person, right? So there's a vibe. It's like we're an envelope and we're addressed and there's something on it. And the Apostle Paul says, you are a letter read of all men. Well, what does that letter say? That letter speaks of love. It speaks of joy. It speaks of faith, friends. This is the way it's supposed to be for all of us for all believers. So what gets in the way? What is it that pickpockets our hearts of love, joy, and faith? Isn't that a good question? Come on. Because you know sometimes you don't walk in love. There's sometimes you don't walk in joy. There's times that you don't walk in faith. So what pickpocketed my heart? Because they were there yesterday. They were there last week when I needed them. But why aren't they there today? What is it that keeps pickpocketing my heart? good question. Friends, I know this is going to sound so simple and so redundant, but it's the indoctrination of the old covenant law as the standard and the foundation of our righteousness and holiness. All of this is nothing more than the clandestine enemy of grace. Paul continues with these words. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ. I love this part, the result of our ministry. In other words, your letter didn't look so good when we first met you. But as a result of the ministry, as a result of what we've poured into you, you are beginning to look like a letter from Christ. Imagine what a letter, if Jesus sat down and wrote you a letter he wouldn't have to use a bunch of eloquent words. He would speak directly to your heart. And you'd understand exactly what he's saying. And the Apostle Paul here is saying, you're starting to show like you're a letter from Christ. He says, the result of our ministry. This is why the church is so important at this hour, friends, is so that we can take this word and we can speak it into lives and watch lives get transformed. And he says, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. In other words, not written by man, but written by the Spirit of the living God. 
And then he says, not on tablets of stone. What are the only thing that was written on tablets of stone, friends, in the Bible that it talks about? It was the law. And that's why he's saying this. He says, it's not about the law. This letter that we're looking at right now is not about the law. He says, it's not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I love that. It's written on our hearts. And then he says, (laughs) it's almost like an exclamation point belongs here. Such confidence, he says. Can you see him? Raising his hands and going, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Next scriptures. And then he says, he has made us competent as ministers of a, look at this, new covenant. Not of the letter. That's the old covenant. He's made us competent ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. Look what he says. Strong language. He says, for the letter kills. But the spirit gives life. The indoctrination of the law will kill you. It will kill your joy. It will kill your love from flowing. It will kill your peace. It will kill your satisfaction. It will kill your rest. He says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, Pastor Mark, you said that the indoctrination into the moral law is the chief of frenemies. Is that what you said, Mark? That's exactly what I said. And guess what? I speak from experience. I'm not speaking from some sort of textbook. I just read it somewhere. I'm talking from 27 years of ministry. Every believer that I have ever ministered to was deep down inside their heart wrestling with those four pillars, guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation, even performance. They had that at the very root system stuck in an old covenant soil. Friends, let me tell you something. A tree can only be as healthy as the soil it is planted in. Would you agree with that? You have contaminated soil, you have a contaminated tree. Likewise, contaminate a man's mind, poison a man's mind with old covenant indoctrination and he will walk around a tattered letter. He'll walk around like Eeyore, you know, just kind of all droopy and everything, just don't know what to do, you know. I mean, come on, friends. We have confidence, he said, such confidence I have in Christ. He will have misplaced his true identity. And you know what? When a man misplaces his true identity, he requires perpetual commendations and affirmations. You ever meet anybody like that? You got to always keep commending them. You got to always keep affirming them. Friends, if you never clap for me a day in my life, if you never say amen again, it won't hurt my feelings. I'm telling you. I know who I am in Christ. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not about that kind of stuff. That man will be in constant need of encouragement and booster shots of confidence, having forgotten the truths that he is not competent in himself. This is where it begins, understanding you are not competent. You are not confident in yourself either. 
He is not competent in himself to claim anything for himself, but his competence comes from God. The Apostle Paul called us a letter, didn't he? He said, you are a letter from Christ. The Apostle Paul called us a letter. And then a couple of sentences later, he said that the letter kills. <laughs> well, that's not very encouraging, Paul. We're the letter and the letter kills? Friends, Paul is talking about two very different letters. One written on tablets of stone and the other written on tablets of the human heart. One brings death, the other brings life. The one written on stone has to be maintained by you. The one written on the heart, the Spirit maintains. Let me ask you a question. Think about this for a second. What is this word indoctrination? We've all heard it. We all have our own little idea. But let's take a look and see what Merriam-Webster says about the definition of indoctrination. Indoctrination is the process of teaching a person or a group of people to accept a set of beliefs uncritically. Now, it says that indoctrination is the process. A process means it starts probably at a very young child. We begin to get indoctrinated about all kinds of things in life. But indoctrination is over time. It's days that chain into weeks and weeks that chain into months and then into years and then into decades and then into a lifetime. And indoctrination is a lifetime of teaching. You become indoctrinated. And we see all kinds of forms of indoctrination, everything from evolutionism, secularism, racism, Marxism, Mormonism, socialism, Buddhism, Islamism, Hinduism, and even Judaism. We see this over all the place, friends, indoctrination. And it says it's a person, a person who gets indoctrinated, or a group of people, or you could even say a body, a local body, a church body, and it says to accept a set of beliefs. In other words, a set of teachings. This is the way we understand it. But it says the word uncritically. And as I read that definition by Merriam-Webster's, that uncritically, that adverb uncritically began to get highlighted in my heart. And I said, what do you mean by this exactly? And so I looked up this adverb uncritically. And this is what it says. Uncritically is defined by Merriam-Webster as a lack of criticism or consideration of whether something is right or wrong. In other words, you just don't care one way or the other. You have no criticism whatsoever. This is what uncritical means. In other words, like a river, you just go with the flow and you don't question anything. That's how you get uncritically indoctrinated with a set of beliefs. You see, a river has uncritical thinking. It doesn't think for itself. It just follows the banks. The banks determine its course in life. You see how that works? Now, let's bring the merged definitions of indoctrination and uncritically together. Indoctrination is the process of teaching a person or a group of people, even a church body, to accept a set of beliefs without criticism or consideration of whether something is right or wrong. Friends, that's how we got indoctrinated. I challenge you, listen, if I say something you don't agree with, I challenge you to go search it out. 
but you don't just turn a page that you've highlighted or underlined 14 years ago and say, no, that's the truth right there. You study it out, friends. That's why the Apostle Paul would say about his protege, Timothy, he would say, Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Friends, trying to live life by accepting a set of beliefs without critical thinking or consideration of whether something is right or wrong, current or obsolete, or without listening to the sweet Holy Spirit will cause a man's life to fall apart quicker than a roller coaster on a cardboard track. It just falls right apart on every twist and turn. You see that? If you just go with the flow. You don't have to just be critical in the sense that you're always nitpicking. That's not the critical I'm talking about. But I'm talking about you quiet yourself and you go, Holy Spirit, what do you say? And he will bear witness in your heart. Get beyond your going with the flow stuff that this is the way I've always done it. This is the way I've always known it. Listen, those are two steps to stagnation. I see this happening all the time. Our schools, our justice system, the World Health Organization, our government, even our churches have been inoculated and indoctrinated with ideologies that were passed down through the generations. Maybe it was by grandma. Maybe it was by grandpa. Maybe it was from that little church in the country with the white picket fence around it. And because they've held on to doctrine for so long, they just refuse to let go of it. Friends, I've told you, I have. The only way I came into this message of grace is about 12 years ago, I had an honest conversation with the Father. And I said, Father, there's got to be something I'm missing. I'm missing something. I was talking about at the foundational level. It just didn't feel right. I couldn't tell from where I was standing that my building was going like this. Because it was too far out there before it started making its gradual curve. I thought my building was straight with my doctrine, but it wasn't, friends. And so we see this happening in many high-level places today. You know what we're told? We're told, hey, just don't question whether or not we're right or wrong. We know we're right. Don't you question it. We are supposed to be like a river. Just let its banks determine your course in life. After all, who are we to question our leaders? Who are we to question our teachers? Who are we to question our pastors, right? You should. You should question them. Friends, the forsaking of critical thinking and not considering what we hear is poor stewardship of the soul. Just going with the flow numbs our sensibilities. You lose the edge. You lose the sharpness because you're just going with the flow. You don't want to resist nothing. Look, Jesus had to resist all the time as he walked this earth. He was constantly resisting. I mean, he came up against Pharisees who were rooted in and dug in. And he would listen to their jargon. And he just loved them where they were at. But he didn't go with their rhetoric. He didn't go with their flow, did he? No. We must learn to listen 
to the one who is always right. Don't let his thoughts and his words into your heart be shaped by what you already believe. Otherwise, you'll walk away unchanged. The sweet Holy Spirit is always right. He's always trying to communicate grace and truth to us. We should consider the trajectory of complacency. We should consider the culture of the new covenant, the fabric of the new covenant. We should consider the cost of old covenant indoctrination. And that's one thing I don't think people do. They don't consider the cost. They don't think about the cost. There's a cost? Is this all supposed to be free? Well, it is under grace, friends. It's not free under the law. You've got to learn it. You've got to maintain it. We must ask the following questions. What did it mean then? What does it mean now? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to the next generation? But more importantly, what does it mean to daddy? What does it mean to the father? What does it mean to God? And I think that's what Jesus was getting at in the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 28 to 33. Look at these words. Jesus said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Isn't that just common sense, friends? I mean, before you buy a car, don't you want to know, do you have more income than you have debt ratio before you get into a payment? Makes sense, doesn't it? And Jesus is saying the same thing. You want to build a tower, don't you sit down and have a reasonable conversation with you? In other words, he's saying, you're not hasty in that decision, are you? It makes sense to sit down and consider the cost. He says, here, estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation, which is the most important part of the building, friends, and that's what was going on. We laid a foundation in the church that I was growing up in, in the ministry I was growing up in, that it was up to you to maintain. And that's because it put us under the old covenant law as our standard for righteousness and holiness. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, can you hear the laughter? <laughs> this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Aha! Uh -huh. They still do that to this day. Friends, would you like to know how we end up believing in a doctrine that supports and sponsors the old covenant law, the clandestine enemy of grace? Would you like to know how that's done? It's so simple. Jesus just said it right here in these scriptures. It's because many believers have not sat down and estimated the cost. There is a cost that comes with building a tower with an old covenant foundation. You'll pay for it the rest of your life. <laughs> because that's what the old covenant was designed to do. Make you pay for it. If you colored within the framework, you got blessings. You colored outside the framework, you got curses. It's a crime boss that is never satisfied. The old covenant is a crime boss that is never satisfied. You tell him, get out of here. You bother me. Don't you ever come back here again. But that crime boss is so bold, he just marches back there again and says, hey, pay up. See, this is what the old covenant law did to people. You've got to pay for it. You've got to bring a lamb. You've got to bring a sacrifice for your sin. It doesn't go unpunished. Aren't you glad we don't have to do that anymore? 
It's a crime boss that is never satisfied. You see, even as the banks of a river determine its course, likewise, the words from the pulpit can determine a believer's course in life. Again, that's why the Apostle Paul told his protege Timothy to study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that's not dealing with shame all the time. How, Timothy? Because you're rightly dividing the word of truth. The old covenant was true. The new covenant is true. How do we divide it? The cross. That's how you rightly divide. The cross changed everything. It didn't just make a difference. It changed everything. Changed it all. In other words... We shouldn't just swallow everything we hear. You got to get out of that habit. You got one guy saying one thing, one minister saying one thing, and then this minister over here saying diametrically the opposite of what this guy said. Now, tell me that they're both listening to the Holy Spirit. No, what they're listening to is indoctrination. One minister can't say, yes, you have eternal life. And then this minister say, no, nope, your life in God is conditional. You can walk away from it. This guy over here says, no, you can't walk away from it. This guy says, yes, you can. Folks, this is, do you see how confusing this is to the church? And so what the church does is they reach out and they put their arms around the one they like the most. And that's the one they cling to like a koala bear. They just put their arms around it and they won't let go. It's indoctrination. So many believers are trying to build their own tower through the old covenant law, that's one way, or just by overcritical thinking. Many people have not sat down and had a sensible conversation with the new covenant scriptures. Let me have a reasonable conversation. You've got to do most of the listening because there's stuff that the Holy Spirit and the scriptures want to undo in your mind. And it takes listening, not talking. You will never get free by you doing all the talking. You have to be willing to listen and to receive, even if it goes against your paradigm of the way you were taught. They have not learned to modulate their emotions and indoctrinations with grace and truth. They've not learned how to temper this yet. As a result, the banks of the river have determined their course. As it is with the 401k, many believers fall for the deception of matching contributions. See, we get so used to the world working a certain way. If I give 3% at work, my employer gives 3%. That's called a matching contribution. It's a win-win, friends. You've saved money and your employer says, I'm going to help you save money. What you put in, I'll put in. It's free money. We get used to everything in life a matching contributions, friends. Friends, our hope is not found in matching contributions. There is no match for Jesus. Come on. And our hope is not found in a diversified portfolio, but rather in the revelation that Jesus plus nothing still equals Jesus. Another way to say it is all of my eggs are in one basket. Now, if we're talking about money, I believe in diversification. You put so much in this stock, so much in that fund, so much in that 
commodity. I understand that part, but we're talking spiritual here, friends. And our hope is in Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing still equals Jesus. He has already given us everything that we need in life and for godliness as well. He does not use a high-risk plan of salvation for one denomination. You're high-risk. So we've got a certain plan that we have to underwrite for you and a preferred plus plan for you because you guys have it more together. So you get a different one. You get a different plan of salvation. No. In fact, denominations are not taken into the equation. Jesus is what matters, right? How many of you have had a conversation with a person who said that they tried Christianity one time, but it just didn't work for them? Come on. You have bound to have that conversation somewhere along the line. I tried Christianity. I tried being a Christian one time. You know, it just didn't work for me. I've had dozens of people tell me that over the years. Listen to me carefully, friends. That person did not get introduced to the finished work of the cross, to the finished work of Jesus Christ, to the finished work of grace, but rather they were introduced to the clandestine enemy of grace, which is the old covenant law. In other words, the reason it didn't work is because they got saved and they felt this warm and fuzzy feeling. I don't know how many times I've led someone to Christ and I watched them just shake and they go, whoa, what just happened? That feels so good. That's your sins being extracted and Christ coming to live in your heart. I imagine this happens on a Wednesday and then you show up for church on Sunday and then I got to tell you, you got to do more. You got to be more. That's the stuff they walk away from. They're not walking away from Christ. They're walking away from man-made religion. Old covenant indoctrination. You cannot. You cannot. It's impossible to meet the Father in His unconditional love and in His limitless mercy and in His matchless grace and then still peddle the message that Christianity just didn't work for me. Impossible. Once you see him, you cannot unsee him. Once you fall in love with him and know how he loves you with you, the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 that he's given us an undying love for Christ. We'll always have that love. They walk away from the institution. They walk away from the church. They don't even know it, but they're walking away from the indoctrination of the Mosaic law because they say, I can't live up to that. When I first got saved, I was ministering to a young lady who was my sister's best friend. It was late one night. I was at my sister's house. She was there and I figured she needed to be saved. And I said to her, young lady, Jesus wants to save you. She said, I, I know, I, I know. She got real antsy, real nervous. She said, I know, I know he does, but she said, I can't right now. I said, why not? She said, because I still smoke. I thought, are you kidding me? Why would she believe? Because we grew up in the church believing the three mortal sins were smoking, drinking, and cussing. That's the three that, come on now, you, you heard it too right now. Smoking, drinking, he can't be a Christian, he smokes. He can't be a Christian, he drinks. He can't be a Christian, he cusses. I have led people to the Lord, and two seconds later, they were still cussing, friends. And I know they just got saved. They were still cussing. Why? Because they had been indoctrinated with cussing. They didn't realize they were doing it, you know? And then once in a while, they catch themselves and go, oh, I'm sorry. 
Excuse my French, I just look at him and say, look, don't blame it on the French, okay? That's just a bad word. But you know what? The Holy Spirit can take that away from you, okay? Just let him do it. I cussed worse than the sailor when I came to Christ. And I remember one of my first prayers was, Holy Spirit, take cussing from my heart. You know why? I want to look like the letter that Paul described, full of love and joy and peace. That's my four-letter word, love. So you cannot meet him in his fullness and his glory and his grace and then walk away from him. When you walk away, it's because you've got to a point in your life where you can't see hope beyond your situation. And so you just retreat back to what you were used to, kind of like what Peter did. He went back to fishing and took six of the other disciples with him. So when Jesus is talking about considering the cost, to me it registers as consider anything and everything. Consider it all. Sit down. Unbusy yourself for a moment. Listen to the Holy Spirit. And guess what? He'll teach you how to walk in peace and in rest and love and in joy. And then Jesus continues. Look at these words here. It says, Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, which they did all the time. Won't he at first sit down and consider? Do you see the motif? It's the same thing, isn't it? Building a tower, going to war, doesn't matter. It's high-profile stuff. You need to sit down and consider, he said. He said, won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now see, that tricks us right there. We've got to give up everything we have to be his disciples. Friends, prior to Jesus coming to live in our hearts, we faced an enemy that we couldn't defeat with clubs and spears. And after we came to Christ, we discovered a new enemy. It's the indoctrination of the old covenant law as the foundation of our righteousness and holiness. I'm talking about the clandestine enemy of grace. What in the world does all of this mean that Jesus was talking about? Friends, these scriptures do not tell us to give up everything God has but rather to give up everything we have. We have to completely abandon the clandestine enemy of grace, which is the law. You give that up, friends. You're almost born into it. Almost everybody is raised into it. I'm, I'm so thankful for the generation that are coming up in finished work homes, finished work families, that they just don't even have to go through as much as that we went through. There's a medical condition of the eyes that is called strabismus. Strabismus is when your eyes are not lined up properly and they point in different directions. One eye may look straight ahead 
while the other eye turns inward or outward or upward or downward. Strabismus affects vision since both eyes must aim at the same spot at the same time in order to see properly. When one eye is out of alignment, in other words, it's inward or it's outward or it's looking upward or downward, when one eye is out of alignment, two different pictures are sent to the brain and it confuses the brain. If strabismus takes place in a young child, like you see on the screen right here, their brain learns to ignore the image of the misaligned eye. Instead, the child sees only the image from the straight eye or the better seeing eye. As a result, the child loses their depth perception. Now, anybody that drives, anybody that flies a plane understands how important depth perception is, right? And they absolutely lose it when you're looking through two different eyes that are looking in two different directions. Friends, as a minister of the gospel of grace, I have found this to be true when I am ministering the finished work of grace to an old covenant law-indoctrinated believer. The greatest challenge I face is in trying to convince them that the old covenant law was made obsolete. I'm talking about the very teachings that they have been staring at from a child, which are nothing more than an old covenant indoctrination, an indoctrination that teaches a person or a group or a body of people to accept a set of beliefs without criticism, or consideration of whether something is right or wrong, current or obsolete. Now, spiritually speaking, there's a spiritual application to this. Spiritually speaking, they have tuned out. They have learned to ignore, and they have lost sight of the clandestine enemy of grace. Friends, the clandestine enemy of Jesus' finished work is the old covenant law. But as believers, we are no longer under the law, the scriptures say in Romans. But we are under grace. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, we find these words. Jesus is talking. He said, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. The light of the body is the eye. And if thine eye be single, then the whole body is full of light. What in the world does it mean to have a single eye? Is he talking about an eye in the middle of your forehead like we're some sort of cyclops or something right in the middle of our forehead? <laughs> no, friends. Confusion comes when we stare at two different objects or opinions at the same time. Our brains cannot handle two images, therefore it tunes one out, kind of like strabismus. It tunes one of them out. Elijah was familiar with this truth. That's why he would say to the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? He said, if the Lord is God, follow him. 
But if Baal is God, follow him. In other words, he's saying, look, make a decision. One way or the other. You're going to drive yourself nuts. You're going to drive yourself crazy if you keep toggling, wavering between two opinions. He said, if God is God, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if you want to go to the way of Baal, then follow him. Friends, listen, I go the way of the Lord, but I don't need to follow the Ten Commandments. I don't need to follow the 613 Jewish laws to be right with him. The Spirit has made me right with him. Now, yes, I want to obey the moral law. I don't get into all the 613 Jewish laws because, they, like I said in the previous message, I'm not interested in all that nonsense they had to go through, and it's not for us anyway, right? Our brains cannot handle all those images at the same time, so when it comes to indoctrination, it tunes one out. So Elijah knew that truth. Friends, illumination for the whole body of Christ comes when we look to him alone as the foundation of our righteousness and holiness. We look to him alone. There's no wavering for me. There's no other opinion for me to consider. I look to Christ alone for my righteousness, my holiness. Christ alone. Remember, it's Jesus plus nothing still equals Jesus, right? No matching contributions, no letter of the law, no guilt, no shame, no fear, no condemnation, and certainly no frenemies. Okay? When a child is indoctrinated with atheism or hatred or critical race theory, then that child will grow into an adult that has no depth perception to see grace and truth. They will have learned to ignore the images of love and honor, and respect, and mercy, and kindness. Because of so much social media, and because of so many godless homes, and the indoctrination of the law, our children have learned to tune out the images of love, and honor, and respect. But Jesus said, if your eye be single, if that eye is fixated on me, you're going to see love with every beat of the clock. You're going to see joy unspeakable and full of glory. You're going to see peace, everlasting peace. When your eye is single and you're not wavering between this and that, the law and grace. This is when the power of God shows up. The power of God to do what? Just miracles? No! The power of God to love someone. The power of God to be gracious to someone. The power of God to be kind to someone. Again, the Old Covenant indoctrination is the main offender that lays the cataract over the gospel of grace so that people cannot see the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, the Old Covenant is chock full of conditions that no longer apply under the new covenant. Why? Because the old covenant was made obsolete. That's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Yet many believers accept these teachings without criticism of whether or not they're right or they're wrong. I'm in a friendly church. I'm just doing fine. I've got a lot of friends. My pastor spends a lot of time in the Word. I just go along with everything. And again, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I'm just telling you, this is how it happens, friends. 
when the Holy Spirit was putting this word together in my heart this week, this is not where I wanted to go. I wanted to go with a totally different message. He said, no, this is the way we're going to go. This belongs in this series here because people don't understand how this is happening. If you don't understand how it's happening, there's not much you can really do about it, right? You don't. You can't. So the old covenant is chock full of conditions that no longer apply under the new covenant. And we're thankful for that. Friends, the devotion, let me say it another way, the obedience or even the observance of the old covenant law is the clandestine enemy of grace. In other words, if that's what you have your sight set on, that is an enemy of grace. Grace means unmerited favor, undeserved favor, unwarranted favor. Nothing you can do to earn it. I just want to bless you because I'm your father. Happy Father's Day, Daddy. I just want to bless you because I'm your daddy. I'm your papa. Crawl up in my lap. Let's hang out together. Let's have a good time. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question now. Was there a problem with the Old Covenant law? The answer is no. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. The scriptures say the law is perfect, converting the soul. Then how is the Old Covenant law the clandestine enemy of grace? How is the Old Covenant law the secret enemy, the hidden enemy, the covert enemy, the underground enemy. How can that be then, Mark? When I was asking the Holy Spirit that question a couple of days ago, I said, you're going to have to make it plain to me. You're going to have to really put it plain to me because some people don't like this kind of teaching, but it's true. And I felt the Holy Spirit draw this picture in my mind. He said, you know what? A wristband from Six Flags Great America will not allow entrance into Disney World. And when he said that, I thought, what? And I said, wow, that means the wristband isn't bad. No, the wristband isn't bad. It didn't do anything. It just means that it wasn't made for both places. Do you see that? So simple. It wasn't made for both places. Likewise, you and I weren't made for both the old and the new covenants. Jesus said, if the eye be single, then the whole body is full of revelation. That's what light means. It's full of revelation. It's full of illumination. It's full of awareness of who Jesus is. So, then what was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the Old Covenant? It was the framework of blessing for the Israelites. If they obeyed the covenant, blessings came upon them. If they colored outside of the Old Covenant and didn't obey it, then the curses came upon them. As they were blessed, even their own neighbors could see that they had a better covenant than they did. So it was to show their neighbors that God had a covenant with them. The old covenant law was given to show people their sins. How would you know you're sinful if you didn't have an old covenant law to point ten bony fingers in your face and say, 
Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. You know you did. So the old covenant law was there to show people their sins. The old covenant was the Israelites' lifeline to God. That was their lifeline. Then why change it? Why not just leave it the way it is? Why change the old covenant to the new covenant? What's wrong? Listen to me carefully. Because the old covenant law had no ability to make a man perfect or to bring about inner transformation. No ability to do that. It was your, I'm sorry ticket. That was what it was. But it had no ability to transform you on the inside. Jesus came as our final high priest. The Israelites were under the old covenant only until Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, we find these words. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, look, he said, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? We're talking about Jesus here now. One in the order of Melchizedek, that's Christ, not in the order of the first high priest, which was Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Does it say that? The law must be changed also. So now you can see what the Apostle Paul, he is so fired up about this new covenant of grace. He just can't contain himself. He loves the Galatians. He's going to write to the Galatians. And in the middle of his letter to the Galatians, he says these words, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 25. I want to speak to you today from the New Living Translation. It says, dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Do you like examples from everyday life? Sure you do. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, you can't change a contract, in other words, or a, a covenant. So it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. That was long before the law, 400, over 400 years before the law. God made promises to Abraham. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child and that, of course, means Christ. What? Thousands of years before Christ were reaching back in there, and, and the Apostle Paul said, this is what it was really about right here, friends. It's about Christ. A covenant that God made with Abraham by faith alone. You see that? Abraham was, again, before the law. Next scripture. This is what I am trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, hear that now? If all of this that we're going for, if heaven, if our inheritance, if our mansion in heaven, if our golden street named after us could be accomplished by keeping the law, it says, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise, friends. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. I told you that's what the law was for. But the law 
was designed, look at these words, to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Who was that child? He said it was Christ. Friends, underscore these words in your heart. They'll bring liberty. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Next scriptures. Now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. Look at this. It says, if the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. <laughs> Do you see that? <laughs> He's making it so plain. He's like, look, if the law was destined to give you life, there would have been no reason to change it. We just would have kept obeying the law. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. That's an awful thing to think about, isn't it? I don't like to be under guard about with anything, do you? And he said, that's what the law was like. It was like a prison guard. You were kept under the law. And he said, that was the way it was before faith in Christ was available to us. So it tells you that faith takes away the prison guard. We were kept in protective custody. Protective custody is so you can't hurt anybody else and so you can't hurt yourself. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Next scriptures. He says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, look at these words, friends. We no longer need the law as our guardian. Isn't that beautiful? We no longer are covered by the law. The sweet Holy Spirit is here doing it for us. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know that when your supervisor or the someone from the human resource department tells you that you're no longer needed, you are officially unemployed. How many of you know that? Maybe you've not walked down that road before, but I have. Friends, the law of the old covenant is unemployed in the believer's life, okay? Quit deploying it. It's unemployed. Quit employing it. It's unemployed. In fact, the old covenant law was not even made for us. It was not made for the Gentiles. It was made for the Jews. I was talking with a businessman this past week. And toward the end of the conversation, I asked him for his email address. I said, I'm going to email you more information about the product that uh, I've been talking to you about. And he said, well, <laughs> I don't have email. I'm kind of old school. I probably should just zip my mouth right about there. And I just said to him instantly, I said, sir, I got to ask you a question. How do you do business with a new school customer with an old school mentality? 
And he got a little bit of a kick out of that. And he just said, well, I don't know. I stay pretty busy. You see, this man was living in a climate of satisfaction. And a climate of satisfaction never produces change. If you're always satisfied with what you know, if you're always satisfied with the places you go, you know what it does? It never produces change. My final scriptures. Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. He said, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. These are the Judaizers, friends. These are the guys that are telling you, you've got to cut yourself, you've got to be circumcised in order to be right with God. You've got to keep the law in order to be right with God. And the Apostle Paul says, that's garbage. But he says, watch out for those dogs. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, look at these words, and put no confidence in the flesh. You cannot take credit for anything. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. And then he lays out his resume. Next scriptures. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he said, I have even more. In other words, if you want to get into that tug of war, I'm going to win it, friends. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the very day that you circumcised Hebrew babies. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, he said, a Pharisee. In other words, I was the cream of the crop when it came to the law. As for zeal, passion, he said, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, he said, you would have looked at me and you said, that man is faultless. In other words, if you would have judged me by just keeping all the commandments, you would have looked at me and said, that man is without fault. I've never seen him do one thing wrong. And then the Apostle Paul says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Isn't that what Jesus said back there to his disciples? Willing to give up all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith alone. Next scriptures. And he says this, he said, I want to know Christ. What was he saying? I want to know him more. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. 
But one thing I do, he says, forgetting what is behind. I'm forgetting the fact that I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm forgetting the fact that I was faultless to the law. I'm forgetting the fact that I'm from Israel. I'm forgetting the fact that I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm forgetting the fact that I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm even going to forget that I persecuted the church. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, remember critical thinking, if you think differently, that too God will make clear to you only when we're willing to say, Father, I want to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's not about just going with the flow. It's not even about critical thinking. I want to listen to the Holy Spirit because it says right there that God is the one who makes it clear to us. Next scriptures. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, as just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. In other words, let thine eye be single. Put your eyes together. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross, the cross of Christ. One final question I have for you. How does someone live? as an enemy of the cross. How does that happen? By discounting its power and efficacy to save us and to heal us and to deliver us and to keep us without the assistance of the indoctrination of the old covenant law as the standard and foundation of our righteousness and holiness, friends, to add the old covenant law to Jesus' finished work on the cross is to dine with the clandestine enemy of grace. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Today, I stand in the pulpit as a medic for the soul heralding the good news that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Our pitiful contributions change nothing. I want you to hear the words from the Apostle Paul once again. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Do you see where it comes from? You lose stuff by knowing Christ. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Friends, through the preaching of the true gospel of grace, 
the cataract that once covered the hearts of God's people have been removed. The 911 operators have been dismissed. The soul that once bled ceases to hemorrhage. The IV drip of grace that is connected to our heart has silenced the emotional pain of guilt and shame and fear and condemnation. The contusions, the abrasions, and the lacerations that we repeatedly inflicted on ourselves because of chronic disappointment and fits of rage did not alter our identity or our destiny. We are forever the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you need a recommendation? Would you like a confidence booster? Would you like an affirmation that you belong to the Father? Would you like that? Then stand in front of a mirror and be honest with yourself. I want to ask you a question. What do you see? I'll tell you what you're supposed to see. You're supposed to see that you're a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Why? Because He has made us competent ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Friends, Jesus said, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. I shared with this earlier that strabismus is a condition of the eyes and it affects vision and it affects depth perception. And when the old covenant law is preached as the foundation of our righteousness and holiness, it also affects our vision and depth perception. We fail to see that we are new creations in Christ, and we fail to remember the depth of the Father's love for us. There's your depth perception problem right there. Folks, Daddy is not our frenemy. He's our loving Father. He's our loving Papa. Friends, grace the undiluted gospel can be summed up in this one statement. Jesus plus nothing still equals Jesus. He is all we need. Let me say it one more time, loud and clear, pure and plain. The indoctrination of the Old Covenant Law as the standard and the foundation of our righteousness and holiness is nothing more than the clandestine enemy of grace. Father, we thank you so much. I have stood here as a medic today for the soul. And Father, although many of these truths had already taken root in our hearts, we need to hear this gospel over 
and over again. We have many enemies in this world. Satan is certainly one of them. The flesh is our enemy. The world can be our enemy. The world can hate us. But then there's more subtle enemies that we haven't paid attention to over the years. And that's the enemy of being indoctrinated in a way that is not new covenant and then being uncritical about it. Never coming up against it. Just going with the flow. Just flowing like a river. Twists and turns. Father, I thank you that this new covenant message is reaching the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls across the nation. And I thank you as you're pouring this message into their heart that it just becomes so much more than a message. They see it as life. It takes away guilt, shame, fear, and condemnation. It takes away our need to perform. And so, Father, I'm so grateful that you've called me to minister this word. May it stick to our hearts. And may we grow like that tree, providing shade to those that need comfort, providing fruit to those that are hungry, and providing beauty to those that cannot see. In Jesus' name, amen.